Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Welcome, my name's Robert, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's really just a pleasure to be completing to some degree our foundation series, even though we still really got one more session, but it's not a part of Hebrews 6, so here we are at the foundation series, we're looking today at eternal judgment, and again if you could turn to Hebrews chapter 6, I'm just going to introduce it slightly as you're turning. Now, in the previous chapter, the writer is speaking about the similarity between Jesus and Melchizedek. And that Jesus, in chapter 5 of Hebrews, you can just glance at it in verse 11, that Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 11 says, of whom we have much to say And hard to explain. (laughs) You see, the writer is wanting to convey deep, meaningful, yet complicated material. But he can't. Why? Because or since you have become dull of hearing. Verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers. Hello. Hello. Some of my brothers and my sisters who've been in the, in the faith for quite some time. The time when you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he or she is a babe. Verse 14, but solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now on that basis, Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1 says, look, now therefore, he says, leave in the elementary principles. Now say leave in. The elementary principles. All right, everybody say the elementary principles. Thank you, of Christ. Let us go on to perfection or to maturity. You see his argument? He wants to deal with the weighty stuff, but he can't. And he's going to, for virtually this whole chapter, he's going to take a minute to highlight the importance of keeping up and keeping track. See, as we get older, just like you would your children, you don't expect. If my son is two years old and he needs me to tie his laces, standard, I will tie his laces without question. But you better not be eight, nine, ten, chatting about, oh, dad, can you tie my laces for me, please? Why? Because I expect that at a certain age, he's going to begin to walk in a certain amount of maturity and responsibility. Amen? So... His argument here is, look, it's important to lay the foundation, but once it's laid, we need to move on. Not laying again, and we began to look at the foundation, didn't we? 
not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, faith toward God, doctrine of baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection from the dead, which we looked at last week, and of eternal judgment, which is what we're going to do this week. And this we will do, that is move on, if God what? If God permits. See, and... God will not allow you to continue building if you haven't laid the proper foundation. Now that's scary. Because as, as, as a believer, we, as believers we can be 5, 10, 15 years down the road and feel like, how comes I'm not moving on in my Christian life? Not knowing that God has put a, a block on your life. A stop to your life, to your development. Now that doesn't sound like God, right? But this is what the text says. And in the context, this is what it's communicating. You remember Balaam? At one time, Balaam was on a mission, he thought. And God was resisting him, but he never realized. See? We need to lay the proper foundation. Without a properly laid foundation, God will not give you a permit. Just like a responsible building inspector. It's imperative that you lay a solid foundation, which ultimately, as we said last week, is obedience to Christ. <clears throat> now, if you've been here for the last few weeks, then you know <clears throat> that this is the last of the Hebrew six messages. We are on the seventh, which is eternal judgment. And as I stated last week, these are fundamental to the gospel. Not least of all our topic today, eternal judgment. Now you could get the impression that this is speaking about something future. Well, it does. It does speak about the future, but it also speaks about the past and the present. The Greek word for eternal means perpetual. Speaking of the, the past, the present, and also the future. Now, first of all, speaking of the past, Romans 16 verse 25 says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world what? Began, and that's our word for eternity. In Greek, it's, I'm sure I'm not going to pronounce it correctly, Ionios, and it's our word for eternity. You see how it uses that same word, but in a different way, with reference to what? The past. When did the world begin? At least for us, anyway. It began in the past, didn't it? Now, here's another one that speaks even more clearly about the past. 2 Timothy <clears throat> chapter 1, verse 9. Speaking of God, he who has saved us, and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus, when? Before time began. Now that's the word again, but notice it goes back even further. Not just when the world began, but before time began. And then John chapter 3 and John chapter 7 both speak of the present. That's the past, right? Two verses that speak about eternity with reference to the past. Now, 
Here's a verse that speaks about eternity with regard to the present. John 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. When? Present tense. Has. And he who does not have, sorry, he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So you can see that there's a a meeting of the past and the present with regard to those who have eternal life, everlasting life. The word everlasting is the same word, ionios, meaning eternal. John chapter 6, verse 47 says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Now, for those of us here now, evidently, that speaks about something that took place in the past, yet is a constant and perpetual present reality. Amen? Okay, so that's the past and the present. When do we see our word, Ionios, spoken about in the future tense? Second Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in the middle of verse 7. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Hmm. Can't wait for that time. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God. Ooh, not so excited about that. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction. See that word everlasting? Guess what? Everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes, when? Past tense, present tense, it's future. In that day, definite article because it's a specific time in the future. To be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe. When is this? Verse 7 just said, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. When that happens... It will be present tense at that time. But for us now, it's future. When does eternity begin? When does eternity end? See, it has no beginning and it has no ending. Therefore, question is, when is eternal judgment? Well... Eternal judgment is in the past, but it's also in the present, and it is also referencing the future. Eternal judgment. And it's, check it, it's eternal, which we've just looked at, but it's judgment. Now, what does the word judgment actually mean? Judgment. Well... In other places in scripture, the word means to decide, to give a verdict, or to declare an opinion. See that? That's judgment. In other places, it means to investigate or to scrutinize. Judgment. In another place, it means to discriminate or to distinguish. All different meanings in the Bible for judgment. And Those can be seen positively, or they can be seen negatively, right? But here in Hebrews chapter 6, the word for judgment 
is a decision is a decision made in response to a crime. A decision made in response to or as a result of a crime. And the decision always leads to something. Look what it leads to. It leads to vengeance and is translated in other places, condemnation or damnation. That's what this type of judgment is speaking about. Eternal judgment. And when it comes to judgment, who's the judge? God is the judge. Psalm 50 verse 6 says, For God himself is judge. And not only is he the judge, he's the judge of the whole earth. Genesis chapter 8 in verse 25 says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? But God isn't just the judge of those on earth. I mean, that's quite spectacular as it stands. But he's not just the judge of those on earth, but also those in heaven and on earth, but also those under the earth. Now, we talked about that last week, right? Now, let's look at some examples of judgment in these different spheres. Starting off in the past, where God judged in eternity in heaven. Who am I talking about? Or whose judgment am I talking about? Lucifer. Lucifer, who now is more commonly known as the devil or Satan. But he never used to always be the devil. He never always used to be the deceiver. The liar. Or the father of lies even. He used to be Lucifer, the bright and shining one, the covering cherub. Ezekiel chapter 28 says, starting at verse 12, Thus says the Lord God, the judge, by the way, You, speaking to Lucifer, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. That's why I don't want to be too pretty. You know what I mean? They 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 got a new term for the modern man. Right? Um, you know, they got the homosexual, which is quite a new term. You got the common heterosexual, but you got now the metrosexual. Oh. And he's the brother who's got all of the products in his bathroom cabinet <laughs> facial scrub and all the other stuff. Metrosexual. I, I have to be careful that I don't go too far down that road. You know what I mean? Because you can work wonders nowadays, right? Lucifer was beautiful beyond measure to the point where it began to get the better of him walking past every every shop window not just looking at the stuff in the window looking at himself in a reflection checking himself out see he was Not only perfect in beauty, imagine he was full of wisdom. Now that's a scary combination. It's it's amazing when you get the combination of both of those things in one individual. Scary. You need to be humble if that's you. 
Because both of them are gifts. And the Bible says, every good and perfect gift comes from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Scripture says, what do you have that you did not receive? So if you're pretty, you're handsome, and you're clever, oh my gosh. You need to be more humble than the next person. So that that does not get the better of you. Scripture gives the devil as a, as a consistent example of that. Moving on, verse 13. You, check it, this is how we know it's Lucifer. You were in Eden, the garden of God. I mean, we, there's, only, there's only four people that was in there. God, Adam, Eve, and the serpent, and Lucifer. And evidently, it's not talking about Adam and Eve, right? And it's definitely talking about God. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, the topaz and diamond, the beryl, the onyx and jasper, sapphire, turquoise and emerald and gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you in the day you were created. Some suggest that on the basis of that verse that, that, that Lucifer could, 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 could play music without the aid of amplifiers and speakers. Don't know how true that is. Some even go on to say that he would actually lead worship in heaven well verse 14 you were the anointed cherub who covers yo that is high status and i mean remember you got you got you got two angels that are named in scripture michael and gabriel and they they're not just angels they're archangels so they're like super duper high level like angels. And Lucifer was in that category. And it says he covered. Again, another suggestion is that he was literally over the throne of God as the protector. God says, I established you. See, you can't... <clears throat> I'm not even trying to teach on Ezekiel 28, but God says, I established, I established you. And you see, you see God say that quite consistently throughout the scriptures to individuals. Remember David, David, when he flopped, when he fell with Bathsheba and murdered her husband, God's like, David, I established your throne and furthermore, would I not have done so much more? But you see, the reason he fell, David, is because he forgot that it was God who established him. Got his feet up in the kingdom now. Like what? Yeah, this is me. See, and the same thing happened to Lucifer. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. This is stuff we don't even understand. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and sinned. Therefore, I cast you, because I have the ability to do that, because I am the judge. I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer. 
son of the morning. What? Son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, and here's the problem, and I think it's about five times you hear in, 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 in his communication it's, that it's all about him. See, he says, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. This is geography we don't know nothing about. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. The only thing he never flopped on was he recognized he couldn't be greater than God. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. And we're going to come back to that in a moment. Now, when did that take place? In the past. And will be concluded in the future in time to come. But God also judged and continued, continues to judge when? In the present. In the now, in the continual present tense. Remember the flood? See, it was present tense for Noah, yet it is written within our space-time continuum, right? Quote-unquote, still present, between the beginning of time and the end of time. Here's another one. You remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember that old tune from back in the day? Old school, revival selection. God judged... Or God condemned and rained down fire and brimstone on those two cities. Remember? Okay, there you have two examples of the past slash present. An example of the present slash future would be the judgment of the Antichrist. Where he and the false prophet will be thrown by the Lord Jesus... Sorry, will be overthrown by the Lord Jesus in Revelation 19. We're going to see that as well in a minute. Past, present, and future. In heaven, on earth, and otherwise. You have to listen to last week's MP3. However you look at it, however you want to slice it, God is the judge of all. Now, there are four principles that govern God's judgment. Four principles that govern God's judgment. The first one is, God's judgment is according to truth. God's judgment is according to truth. Romans chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, you are, it, you are inexcusable, O man. Whoever you are, who would even take the responsibility to judge? You've got to be careful when it comes to judging. Matthew 7, verse 1. It says, the Bible doesn't say you mustn't judge. It says, be very careful how you judge. Because if you judge Matthew 7, verse 1, in a way that you condemn others, be careful, because with the same measure of judgment you judge them, God's going to judge you. And in Galatians 6, I believe it's verse 1, it talks about, if you're going to judge someone else, be very careful how you do it. Do it considering yourself. Lest you yourself find that six months down the road, 
So that, you're like, wow, that could be me. So let me just take my time as I step to this brother or this sister. Bruv, can I buy you a cup of coffee? Can we sit down and just have a chat? Not, yo. Wait a minute. Yeah, right, you understand, right? You've got to be careful how we approach. It doesn't say we mustn't judge, but we must just be careful how we judge. Now, did I read all of that verse? Therefore, you are an inexcusable. I have trouble with that word. You are inexcusable, O oh man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. Easy now. I love the way Nathan stepped to David. Gently. I mean, he's probably thinking about <laughs> the possibility of losing his head. I mean, you step to the king. Are you going to correct the king? You're going to rebuke the king? Take time. And I mean, but he also did it because he was a godly man. And it's a real good pattern of how we're supposed to step to one another. And we have to be careful because very often when we point a finger at someone else, what do they say? There's three fingers pointing back at you. Because we do the same things. We need to be like, you know, bruv, I know it seems like you're struggling with that thing. Come, we pray. And forevermore, you know what? Pray for me. See what I'm saying? Because we practice the same things. If you're here and you're visiting, this is a hospital full of sick people. I mean, there ain't no one in here who ought to point the finger at you and look down on you. Like the Pharisee did when he stood and he prayed, the Bible says, with himself. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that sinner. I pay my tithes. And I fast twice a week. Jesus said that. And then there was a sinner across the way who didn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. The other brother was bossy. The other man just held his head down and smote his chest. And he said, God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. The Lord says that man, not the first one, that one who smote his chest, he went away justified. The other one. He wasn't talking to God. Jesus says he prayed with himself. <laughs> That's what it says. <clears throat> Verse 2, Romans 2. But we know that the judgment of God, you see, God can judge because God took all the facts. And furthermore, God don't sin. But we know that the judgment of God is according to Check it, it's my first point. It's according to truth against those who practice such things. Judgment is according to truth. The second <clears throat> principle that governs God's judgment is that God's judgment is according to deeds. It's according to deeds. Romans chapter 2, verse 5 says, But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart... You are treasuring up for yourself. I mean, talk about a savings account. This is the kind of savings account you don't want. Treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day, check it again, the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one how? According to his or her deeds. And, and check it. Let's get even deeper than that. Because it's not just the deeds. 
I mean, that's bad enough, getting judged because of the stuff that we do. But check it. God's judgment is also according... Where is it? Huh. To the motives. Revelation chapter 2. You see, it's one thing doing the right thing, but it's another thing doing it with the right motive. That's why Jesus could judge that Pharisee because he knew his motive. His motive wasn't pure. It seemed like he was doing the right thing. He was praying. Now that's quite a, a serious concept. How many people are praying, but not only is God not hearing them, God is going to use those very words to judge them because they're not practicing what they preach. Revelation 2, this, watch this, Revelation 2. Sorry, struggling this morning. Revelation 2, check this. To the angel of the church, John is writing, right? To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks or the lampstands. Prior to this, in chapter 1, right at the end of chapter 1, the Lord defines what the seven stars are in one hand and the seven golden candlesticks or the lampstands are, doesn't he? He says the seven stars are what? The seven angels. And then he says the seven lampstands are the seven churches that John is writing these letters to, right? And he says, these things, says he who holds the stars in his right hand and walks, now that we've got the code sorted out, he walks in the midst of the seven churches. See, that's how he can judge. And if, speaking of Jesus, if he is the one who walks in the midst of the seven churches, I mean, the church is his. I take it for granted he walks in the midst of all of the churches. I wonder what the Lord sees when he walks in Calvary Chapel, South London. Th th that terrifies me. Because you see, look, me, Pastor P and Pastor E are coming up for the stricter judgment. I'm not even here kind of looking and pointing a finger at you. I'll be like, Lord... If you're walking in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, I better, I better duck and run for cover. Me. See? That's how he can judge. Verse 2, this is scary. I know your works. Of course he does. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's only om, omnipresent anyway. That means he's everywhere at the same I know your works. He's everywhere at the same time. I know your labor. I know your patience. Oh, well. Okay, this list sounds like quite a good list. Patience, labor, work, these are good things. And that you cannot bear those who are evil. Yeah, Lord. Amen, that's right. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not. And you found them to be liars. For real, Lord, I can't believe what I heard that pastor say or what I heard that preacher say for real. And he calls himself an apostle. Sounds like good stuff says and you have persevered and have patience and you've the list goes on and you've labored for my name's sake and have not become weary 
Now, does that not sound like a wonderful list? You'd be like, we'd love to have that, you know what I'm saying, as I am old. Calvary Chapel, South London, right? But verse 4 says, nevertheless, in spite of all of that good stuff, I have this against you. And it's that you've left your first love. Now, the impression you get is that at the beginning, this particular church, the church in Ephesus, was doing all of this good stuff, right? But doing it with the right motive. So you kind of would look on and say, hmm, that church, heavy. Them lot over there, they're heavy. They're not, they're not hypocrites. They're on it. That's what you would say. But then something transpired that you couldn't see. Remember, it goes back to the foundation. You look at the house, that's all you look at. But you don't know what's going on under the ground because you cannot see the foundation. And you might look and you think this church is fantastic. This group of quote-unquote believers are, are on this thing. But something has changed that you cannot see. And what is it? Their motive. That which causes them to do what they do. They're still doing the same thing, but why? Well, the Lord, check it. See, the Lord sees. Hebrews 4 verse 12, we looked at it last week. The word of God is alive and it's powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing and dividing asunder, soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart, and it goes on to talk about the fact that everything is naked and open with regard to him with whom we have to do. Naked. Lord's have x-ray vision, you know. Look straight through into the heart, recognizing the motives. And he says, look, I'm going to give you a chance. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent which is the first of our fundamental principles. See, this is basic to Christianity, repentance. Change the way you think and do the first works for the same first reasons or else I will come to you quickly. I, you know, I don't want the Lord Jesus coming to me quickly. Like, it'd be like Gamma coming at me. You know that Gamma is like some black belt, fur dan, like brother can murder you with his bare hands, right? <laughs> Not that he would do that, you know what I mean? But imagine, my, imagine Gamma coming at you knowing that he, that's, that's what he can do. I'd be like, it'd be like Maximus Decimus Meridius coming, in, coming towards me, little, little bit of me, coming towards me. Not to come and give me a hug, a brotherly, like, c coming towards me to judge me. I don't, need, I, don't, I don't need Jesus coming at me like that. How I need the Lord Jesus, like I read in, in, in John 13, 14 this week, was I need him to come and wash my feet. You know what I mean? That's how I need him to come to me. I don't want him to come at me like this, and remove my lampstand from its place. Now, that's not taking away your salvation, but that's taking away your ability to shine, because that's what lamps do, right? 
That's what candlesticks do. They give light to a room. So if the Lord comes to the church like that and he removes the lampstand, we're all there. Huh, we've got GP on the keys and we've got, we got Will on the drums and Tim's on the guitar and the girls are singing and, and we're meeting and we're here. And guess who ain't here? We're all here. You know, one of the ways the Lord judges <laughs> is by coming to you. But very often, sometimes the way the Lord judges is just walking out on you. And just, and just leaving you to it. And we're there, hey, hallelujah. And... But we're not doing it out of devotion. To... He's no longer the one that captures my attention. You know what I'm saying? He's no longer the, the, the love of my life. That's my problem. I always, I always try to preach on every portion of text that I quote. See how God doesn't just see the deeds, but he sees the motives. Now, the third principle, that's the second. The third principle that governs God's judgment is that God's judgment is without partiality. God's judgment is without partiality. Romans chapter 2 says, For there is no partiality with God. There is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many, this is a really important verse, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, they don't have no law, but they do the things that are in the law. These, although, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Who show the work of the law written in their hearts. Now, who wrote it? Their conscience also, their conscience, mark that word, also bearing witness. Two things bearing witness. And between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. You ever been accused by yourself? Robert, man, you shouldn't do that, you know. Don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And then I go and do it. And then I, and then I say to myself, I told you not to do it. Why did you go and do it? That's one of the ways that we're distinct from the animal kingdom. We're made in the image of God. We can talk to ourselves. David would be like, soul, why are you cast down? Fix up, man. Rejoice in God. Okay, amen. Lord, I praise you. Only we can do them things. Humans. And these individuals, they have the law written in their hearts to be like, don't do that. Okay, I'm not going to do that. You see that? Now, who told me that? The Lord has written in my heart, but I know the Bible. How about those that don't have no Bible? Well, we're going to come back to that. Those who don't have the Bible, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness between themselves, their thoughts accusing or excusing them. In the day... That day again, when, judge, when, when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Now, I got ahead of myself. 
Check it. God is not partial. God is not impressed, that means, with the externals. How many of you know Pastor E did mention this, so I'm not going to spend no time on it. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 6 and 7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, when he went looking for a king, right? He says, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord, he looks at the heart. You see, your job, your wardrobe, I mean your swagger, your good looks, none of these things sway God. Be like, hmm. me up here having a wrestling match with myself we are encouraged 16 times in the old and new testament to emulate god in this matter that is not judging on the basis of externals not to judge according to appearance myself and pastor e um a few years back was working in st joseph academy um you know that we, we work in schools right and we were in a class being introduced by a gentleman called mr tete who's a music teacher just coming to school being introduced and the kids looked at us, and they were like, okay, safe, whatever, innit? Teacher says, oh, yeah, and by the way, they don't just teach performing arts. They're actually pastors. And it was like that. <laughs> they were like, you're joking. What, them two are pastors? Nah. And the, and the school was predominantly, like, black Afro-Caribbean. And about 60% of the pupils were from Ghana, Ghana and Nigeria. So, you know, all of them got Christian background and Christian heritage. And when you say pastor, they know exactly what you're talking about. They were like, nah, not you, not you two. And it's funny because when you look at me now, I'm quite conservative now, you know. Back in them days, oh my gosh, baseball cap, hoodie, you know what I mean? My, my jeans are, are much less baggy and saggy than they used to be. Oh, I like Pastor Pete. I see, I'm trying to catch up with Pastor Pete. You know what I mean? But back in them days, so when they looked at us, they were like, nah, you like it. Nah, my question is, what does a pastor look like? But anyway, what they didn't do was they didn't listen to God with regard to judging according to appearance. How about the fourth principle? The fourth principle upon which God judges. Four, it's according to light. It's according to truth, according to deeds slash motives it's without partiality and then it's also according to light this is implied in romans chapter 2 verse 12 for as many as have sinned going back to this issue of what about the person who never ever reads the bible or hears the bible preached for as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law see some have no law, but we know that God's law or God's word is synonymous with what? Light. Lord, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. God's word is like headlights on your car. Psalm 119 verse 105. So some don't have the law of God. That means they don't have the light. But then some do in minimal fashion. 
But it says that all will be judged based on what they have received. Now, some people have never heard the message broken down with clarity. They've never seen or heard about the Bible. What about those who are, who are living in outer Mongolia? Well, God would judge them on the basis of the light that they have received. But wait a minute, Robert, you just said that they don't have no light. Watch this. They may have an amazing amount of light based on the fact that they see creation. How many of you know that? All the light that one might have is creation. You think creation, how is that a light? How does that speak of God? There are at least three distinct ways that God has revealed himself to mankind. Romans chapter 1 it talks about the fact that God reveals himself through his truth. Now that's clear, we know that. God's word clearly articulates and communicates who he is. You take it to the next level, Jesus is the word of God and he is the express image of God. You want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. Right? And Jesus, John chapter 1 verse 1, is the word, verse 14, made flesh and dwelt among them. Right? Jesus, God's word. Truth, that's how God communicates so clearly. That's one way. Verse 20, Romans chapter 1 says, God also communicates through creation. Now, we're going to read this in a moment. The third way that God communicates, I read it and I highlighted it, is through how? It's another C. Conscience. Like software, God programs man with inbuilt scruples. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 says, God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. See, and on this basis, God judges. It'd be like, if you see a painting, you know standard that there was a painter. If you see my watch, you don't look at it and say, hmm, over millions and millions of years, <laughs> silver metal collected itself, red paint and blue paint. Yo, painting, painter, watch, watchmaker, planet, sky, moon, sun, stars, trees, creation, creator. Amen? Romans, see? So a man don't have to have the word of God, quote unquote. He needs it and he will benefit from it. But all he needs to do is to be able to see creation. And immediately his response ought to be, if he's logical, I mean, talk about being scientific. I mean, really, it is actually being scientific, but you know what I mean. Scientific in today's modern terms. Because they reject God as creator. But logic says, this is incredible. You can't look at a Mona Lisa. You know what I'm saying? You can't look at a Seiko watch, especially when you open it up. I mean, what happens when you open up the human body? It'd be ludicrous to say that 
Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says, check it, for the wrath of God, Lamentations, how did I get there? Anyway, Romans chapter 1. I must have missed it. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Maybe I should have just got you to turn there. Romans chapter 1, For the wrath of God, verse 18, is revealed from heaven. Check it. Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's not that they don't have it. They suppress it. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. See, God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. It's manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. So that they are without excuse. Because, check it, although they knew God, see they're faking it and they don't want to admit it. Because you admit that God exists and you have to admit that you're a sinner. And you fall short of his perfect standard. So I will suppress that. Don't tell me, you know what I'm saying, that homosexuality is wrong. I was born this way and I cannot help myself. And on the flip side, I'm a player. What can I say? It's the way God made me. You get me? I'm, I'm, I'm providing a service. See, the heterosexual who is living outside of the parameters of proper sexuality is just as bad as the homosexual. A lie? See, both of them are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. You know, it's really good to be thankful. It's good to, to, to encourage yourself to always be a person who gives thanks. That's to God and also to others. To be grateful and thankful. It's one of the things that highlights individuals that, that don't glorify God, but become futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is those who suppress the truth. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And that's definitely for the educational, like, scientific community. See, the man from a, re a remote village, he steals a goat. His brethren next door in his mud hut, gone out hunting in the jungle. He steals his goat. God smites him in his heart, in his conscience. God will convict him. And then on the day of judgment, when he stands before God, God will be like, you know what? You never had no Bible, did you? No, I never had no Bible, you know. You never heard anybody tell you about me? No, 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 I never, never, ever. Okay, but... You're not blind, right? Uh, no. So that means you, you see creation, right? Yeah, so? Didn't that communicate something to you? Furthermore, when you stole that man's goat, 
How did you feel in your heart? I communicated to you without words that what you're doing is wrong. But you firmed it and you've done it anyway. So guess what? On that basis, I'm now going to judge you. Because you went against your conscience. You see how God's going to judge those who never heard? With or without law, still going to be judged. And see, and that is more than enough light for God to judge a person by. And he will. Although, it's not God's preference that is to judge. But God is just. And God's love and his justice are like two sides of the same coin. You can't get one without the other. And God must eventually punish sin like a good judge. You ain't no good judge if you're partial. You ain't no good judge if you look at the facts and look at the deeds and you turn a blind eye. You're not a good judge. So God, with tears in his eyes if you like, he has to judge otherwise he's not a good judge. Ultimately, we see God's justice meted out on the cross. Where Jesus is punished for us to the point where he says, Father, you've forsaken me. Yeah, that's because the sins of the world was up, and the judge had to mete out justice on Christ. And maybe next week we'll talk a little bit about, because it's Easter, we'll talk a little bit about just exactly what happened to Jesus in that moment of God's justice coming upon him for us. Hallelujah. God takes no pleasure in condemning man. Now, this is the verse I was looking for. There we go. Lamentations 3 verse 33 says, He does not afflict willingly, nor neither does he grieve the children of man. Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 23 says, Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn? There's our word again. It's right throughout the Bible. The very first fundamental foundational principle in Hebrews 6, repent. Says the Lord God, and not that he should, turn, he should repent from his ways and live. You see, that's God's, God's heart is not judgment. It'd be like Moses says to the people, I put before you life and death. Yo, choose life. Remember Nineveh? Remember the trouble that the Lord went to to get Jonah to preach to that city? That wicked city. I don't have time to talk about the things that they used to do in Nineveh. And what does Jonah say? Jonah chapter 4 verse 2. He says, for I know. Remember he didn't want to go. They say that he was racist. He didn't want to go. He ends up going because God gently encouraged him, right? So he says, in chapter 4, he says, For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. Someone needs to hear that this morning, this afternoon. One who relents from doing harm. Psalm 86 verse 5. For you, Lord, are good. And ready to forgive 
and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. In First John it says, you know what? God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Foolish man often shakes his puny fist at God. Challenging God to strike. I mean, again, that's like me going to, to, to Gamma. <laughs> like, the bread is like, you know what, Rob, just leave it, fam. You know what I'm saying? Bruv, just leave, bruv, just leave it alone, innit? And there's me, you know what? I'm, that's God and puny man. And that's not even a good example because obviously God is much stronger than Gamma. You know what I mean? But, well, if God exists, then, you know, strike me then. Strike me down then, God. That's loose talk. See, very often the fact that God doesn't judge immediately is a sign of his mercy. God just walks away rather than incinerating you. You know what I'm saying? Rather than executing you on the spot. I mean, you'd be dead before you even realize he struck you. You know what I'm saying? This is ludicrous. The fact that he's, he doesn't judge us immediately. Yo, you're, you're stupid, brother. You really ain't got no sense. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, you know, fam, don't get it twisted. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. You want him to judge you, you have no idea what you're asking. But trust me, it's all right. Is that, what, that's what you want? Cool, it's coming. Don't watch that. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness. And this is Peter's argument when you read Second Peter. Because there are people who say, oh, where's the promise of his coming? Blah, 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 blah. All this chat about, oh, Jesus is coming back. Ooh. It's all right. It's all right. See, God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Wow. See, but if a person takes the grace of God for granted, takes it like it's a joke thing, it's all right. God's got Galatians 6 verse 7 for you. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. Now, time doesn't permit us to look at all the examples of God's judgment in the Bible. You know, we're hitting these fundamental foundational principles. We're actually only scratching the surface. But, suffice to say, let's look at two principles as we draw to a conclusion. Let's look at two principles as we draw to a conclusion. Firstly, the judgment, because we're talking about eternal judgment, right? Firstly, the judgment of believers. Secondly, the judgment of unbelievers. First of all, for believers. There is an undeniable progression in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Tell me I'm lying. From the beginning of the Christian life to the conclusion of the Christian life. Right? Remember, Leave the ABCs, allow the foundation, come on, let's move beyond the fundamentals, right? And moving towards maturity, 
moving towards responsibility. Repentance and faith describe the early part of the Christian experience. Resurrection from the dead, which is what we looked at last week, and today's topic, eternal judgment, describe the latter part of the Christian experience. Amen? So, as an individual, you are confronted with the gospel, let's say. And your response is repentance from your dead works. Not trusting in them to save you, but rather having faith toward God. Trusting and believing in Christ. You are then baptized. Then you have hands laid on you, confirming you as a member of the body of Christ. Upon your death, you're then resurrected. Then what? What happens after resurrection? Well, what happens to you then, with reference to the foundational principles, is eternal judgment. That's what's coming next. Now, how does this doctrine relate to you and me as believers? Let's look at John 3. And we're going to look at it from two different angles. Turn with me, please. That's an hour. Turn to John chapter 3. I stop apologizing for being long. What I should have done was apologize at the beginning, knowing that I was going to be long. So I do apologize. John chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. Starting at verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son. Check it. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned. Do you believe in him today? See, and when I say believe, it's not just mental assent. Yeah, man, I believe in God. No. The word believe means to trust in, to rely on, and adhere to. So let me ask again. Do you trust in, adhere to, and rely on Jesus? Well, according to your testimony, if you're a believer, then you're not condemned. But does that mean that you will not be judged? No, it doesn't. After the resurrection, at a certain predetermined time in the future, all genuine, twice-born believers will have to stand in judgment Before a thrice holy God. Now keep your finger in John chapter 3. Flick over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Wait a minute Robert. I thought you just said we weren't condemned. Were you talking about we're going to have to stand in judgment? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 6. 
Now bear in mind what we said last week about the spirit, soul, and the body. Bear that in mind as we read this. Starting at verse 1, 2 Corinthians 5. But we know that our earthly house, what is that? Thank you. The physical body, that's what that is speaking about. This tent, a tent is something that you get into, right? Well, your spirit is the real you, and your body is your tent that you have climbed into, right? When that particular part of you is destroyed, it says we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, describing our new body, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, our new house, our new body, which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked, which is a midrashic term, back to Genesis chapter 3. For we are in this tent, for we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed. We don't want to lose our body. We want a new body. That mortality may be swallowed up by life at the resurrection. Verse 5, now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the spirit as a guarantee, a down payment, a deposit. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, that's why you're alive, right? We are absent from the Lord, quote unquote. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body. That means I want to, my spirit wants to leave this old shell. And once I do that, I'll be present with the Lord, right? Therefore, check it. No. Therefore, knowing all of what I just said, on that basis, what do we do? We make it our aim, whether present with the Lord or absent down here like this, whether there or here, our aim is to be well-pleasing to him. Why? Verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, how many of you know that's good impetus? Knowing that you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ means, hey, like he says in verse 9, let's, let's aim to be well-pleasing. Knowing that at a certain time, that day, we're going to have to stand before him. Check it, that each one may receive the things done in the body. Hmm. According to what he has done, that's talking about in this life, whether good or bad. Verse 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord... Oh my gosh. See, we're not that brother. God, where was you when I needed you? No, I'm not that guy. So what we do is knowing what God is like, we put, we, not only are we convinced, we try and persuade others, etc., etc. Romans chapter 14 verse 10 says, But why do you judge your brother? And this is good stuff for us. Why do you judge your sister? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we all shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. 
and every tongue shall confess to God. Now, that's everybody, but particularly us as believers. Surely we're doing that from now, right? Bowing a knee. So then each of us shall give account of himself and herself to God. Now we'll be like, oh, I'm saved. Thank the Lord I'm, I'm not going to hell. But that doesn't mean that you're not accountable to God. Like, okay, we're off, it's like, scot-free. We are. But we still have to give an account for our life. Now, now, when you hear this stuff, this makes you think, boy, I need to reevaluate my life. I mean, that's why we take communion regularly. So we will be like, you know what? Lord, I've not really been representing you properly recently. I need to fix up. See, God is the judge, but first of all, he says, you know what? You judge. And don't judge others. Judge who? Judge yourself. That in the second Corinthians. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. See, the language in Romans 14, and with regard to the context of both of these portions of scripture that I just read, Romans 14, 2 Corinthians 5, makes it plain that Paul is speaking exclusively to who? Christians. There is also distinct emphasis on the individual. It is also clear that this judgment is related to those things done in the body. While we're here on earth, in other words. Things done in this life here on earth prior to physical death. Another point is Paul indicates that every act performed falls into one of two categories. Everything we say, everything we do, everything we think falls into one of two categories. Good or bad. This goes to prove, to give you a bit of encouragement, this goes to prove that there is room for Christians to make mistakes. But we will have to give an account for them nonetheless. In both passages we hear the apostle mention the phrase, judgment seat of Christ. The Greek word translated judgment seat here is bima. You probably heard that. The word suggests a raised platform used for public view similar to that of the Olympic Games. You know the three, you've got the bronze, silver, and gold podium. It's a little bit like that, for, like in full view. This is what the bima, or this is what this judgment seat of Christ is all about. And it's a ceremony for issuing rewards or the lack of them. Because when you see the guy, gold medal, silver medal, bronze medal, you'd be like, but wait a minute, there were six men in the race. What happened to the other guys? Oh, well, they never, <laughs> they never come for a second or third. So they never got no medals. See what I'm saying? This is not for judgment with regard to sin. It's the place where Jesus will evaluate our service, not our sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones... That's the good stuff. Or wood, hay, and straw. Hmm. 
That's the stuff that's going to get bun up, consumed. Each one's work will become clear. You see, when you understand this, you're the last person to start judging anyone else or pointing a finger. Because <laughs> in full view, I mean, if you want to even bring it up to date, back in those days, at the Olympic Games, the only people that saw you win or lose were the people in the stadium. Now, oh my gosh. I mean, they're broadcasting everything like via satellite all around the globe. You see Inter Milan play Arsenal. Is it semi-final? Inter? Barcelona. Oh my gosh. Barcelona. You can see it in your living room in London live. You're like, did you see that guy? What guy? The guy win the 100 meter sprint. No, I wasn't there. Oh, you missed out. Because you weren't there, but you can't say that nowadays. I mean, you've got Sky, whatever it's called. You can record it. I'm saying this judgment seat of crisis beamer, I would not be surprised if everyone's going to be sitting there watching. Now, I, what can I say? If this don't, this motivates me to fix up. I'm saying, knowing this, motiv what can I, it motivates me, at least momentarily. I don't know about tomorrow, but may God help me. See? Each one's work, verse 13, will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burnt, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved even as by fire. I wish I could into that but no time it's clear that the judgment is not for every man's soul but for every man's work see there are some that teach this and say that you know you lose your salvation it's not true it's like the runner in the race who gets disqualified or oh, shipwreck you lose your salvation no it's not that it's saying that look you got a race to run run it like you want to win it don't be running outside of the lines. You're going to get disqualified. You're married. Don't commit adultery. You will get disqualified. And we know what that looks like. Because we've got two brothers who were run left the field, them brothers. Am I lying? For those of you that know who I'm talking about. Run left the whole field. The man's was lapping, brothers. And now look, they're disqualified. Disqu disc disqualified from the race. Now, but thank God they're still saved if they're repentant. And I'm saying they're still saved, but, bruv, you, you lost the gold, man. And you was heading for gold. You was heading for platinum. So, First Corinthians 4, verse 5 says, see, knowing that this can happen, 
judge nothing before the time. I would have looked at them brothers and I said, Psh, them brothers are gone. They're gone. But I would have been judging it early. See, judge nothing before the time. Until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness. There's things going on in, in, in our lives as Christians. We've got to be careful. Just because no one don't know it, don't mean that no one don't know it. Because God sees it. So it behooves us. It don't make no sense to think that we can do this stuff in, around the corner, in the dark. There's going to be a moment of reckoning. And, and we're not even talking about the ungodly and the sinner yet. That's what Peter says. He says, if this is for us, where on earth are the ungodly and the sinner going to appear? So, God will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Okay, so. So we've looked at the positive effect that the foundational principles have on the life of the believer. How about the negative effect in the life of the unbeliever? As an individual, you're confronted with the gospel. And your response is not one of repentance from your dead works. But expressing unbelief rather than faith towards God. You reject Christ. Therefore, you don't get baptized. And you don't have hands laid on you. And you don't become a part of the Christian community. You don't become a member of the body of Christ visibly. Upon your death, you will also be resurrected. Then what? Well, what happens to you then, with reference to eternal judgment, is scary. Let's now go back to our verse in John 3. Wow. As we try to finish this, as we try to land this plane. <laughs> Verse, verse 18, for he who believes in him is not condemned, we saw that, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He who does not believe is condemned already. Unbelievers are actually on remand because they have already been found guilty, convicted, sentenced and awaiting execution technically every unbeliever is on a stay of execution it's not a matter of if but when we saw this outplayed last week in Luke 16 with the rich man and Lazarus what I didn't mention is that hell is just a holding place until the final judgment as we see in Revelation 20 Now, some say that this is too harsh a judgment and not consistent with the love of God. Some say sinners will be punished, but surely not eternally. We would do well to let God speak for himself. Now, turn to Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 to 46. Matthew 25, 31 to 46. Now, this is a very important portion of text. Matthew 25. 
starting at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Now this is not the word bima. This is the white throne akin to a courtroom. Verse 32. All the nations will be gathered before him. Notice. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them one from another. As a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand. But the goats on the left. Now jump down to verse 46. Which refers to the goats. And these will go away into everlasting punishment. Now that is not a misprint. But the righteous into eternal life. Now, verse 46 uses two words, everlasting and eternal. One for punishment and one for life. Now, question. Do I need to convince you that the righteous will live forever with God? Of course not. We know that the righteous have everlasting life. Well, the word that is used for eternal life, everlasting life, is the same word used for everlasting punishment. Now, people have the impression that these words have different meaning because they are different. It's like, why put everlasting and then eternal? They're different because the words have different meanings. No, they don't. They don't have different meanings. Look them up. They are exactly the same word. And it's our word for eternity. Aeonios. Now, the New King James Version uses different words because it's trying to be poetic. The ESV actually gets it right because it uses the same word twice because it's the same word. Everlasting punishment is just as everlasting as eternal life. Otherwise, eternal life wouldn't be eternal life. They both mean the same thing. Okay, to our last portion of scripture. Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, starting at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne. This is the same as in Matthew 25 that we just read. It's the cosmic version of the old Bailey. This is the heavenly courtroom. And him who sat on it, that is the great white throne, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was no, and there was found no place for them. Now this is nothing like the Bema for believers. I get the impression that this is not a fun place to be. There are going to be no believers here, at least for judgment. There may be some believers up in the gallery watching the proceedings. But they're not a part of the proceedings. Verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, 
standing before God. Notice there's no distinction, small and great. This is completely impartial. And they're all standing before God. And books, plural, were opened. And another book, singular, was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged. How? According to their deeds, according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. Everything has been recorded in the books. But then there is another book, singular. This is the book of life. And it doesn't have the deeds or the works or the motives or anything like that. This book is just dedicated to the names of those who trusted in Christ. The issue is, is your name in there? If your name is not in this book, you will be in the queue getting ready to step into the dock. Yeah, so that all the evidence may be examined and justice ultimately served. So that you can be sentenced. Now you can see why Christians are serious about working at their own salvation with fear and trembling. Because see, we know what we've been saved from. Verse 13. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. See, individuals who died are not going to get away. Even if they were drowned or died at sea. It says the sea gave up the dead who were in it and death and Hades. See, death and Hades or the realm of the dead. That place where people who died in their sins went to. That holding place, that place of remand. Well, they're released from this place, at least temporarily. Up from the dead. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Verse 14, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. We said that hell was just a holding place, remember. This is known as the second death. Because obviously they died once and now they brought back to life and now they're going to die again. But in a much more serious fashion. Barry Smith... Um, an evangelist who is now dead helped me to understand this with a really simple statement that he used to use. He used to say, if you're born once, you die twice. But if you're born twice, you only die once. See, if you're born once, born naturally, as we all are, evidently, otherwise we wouldn't be here. If you're born once naturally, then you end up dying twice physically at the end of your life here on this earth but then also you're brought up back for judgment and then you die a second time when you're judged eternally finally but if you're born twice not once but born twice that is born naturally and then born again spiritually before you die then you only die once and that's your physical death Verse 15 says, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Question. Is this temporary or permanent? 
Well, cast your eyes back to verse 10 of this chapter. The people whose names are not found written in the book, they're going to have company in the lake of fire. Look at verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night temporarily. No, it doesn't say that. This is not temporary, but it's permanent. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And forever and ever means forever and ever. See, th this puts the nail in the coffin of annihilationalism, which is what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. That basically, if you die in your sin, then God will just annihilate you after the judgment. Well... Everlasting punishment means everlasting punishment. Otherwise, everlasting life doesn't mean everlasting life. But there we have it. We have now laid the biblical theological foundation for the Christian life. That is, the ABCs. You might say, boy, wow. <laughs> if that's the ABCs, I don't want to go to college. Well... Let us now go on, as it says in Hebrews 6, to maturity, constructing the rest of the building.